Good morning. It's good to have you here. And I'm not sure how many of you will be inclined to come back tonight, but let me give you a little bit of incentive. I want to do something in the evening service tonight that uh, I don't know how often you do this. I want to speak for about 12 minutes. I'm just going to speak for about 12 minutes this evening, and uh, I want to share with you four spiritual markers in my life. I want to address how God uses his word and God uses his people in our lives at critical times. And I want to share with you how God used his word and people in my life over the course of four significant spiritual markers. I want to do that in about 12 minutes, and then I want to turn it over to you. And I want to ask you for a time of testimonies. It could be however God burdens your heart. But I want to have a family time tonight here at Spring Meadow, and I trust it will be a spiritual encouragement to everyone who comes. So I've whet your appetite. I trust the Lord's will be done tonight as we gather again for a time in the Word. I mentioned in Sunday school that uh, unfortunately Mary's not able to be with me today, and so you only get half the package. I left the better half. Uh, she's on grandma duty because our 10th grandchild, to God be the glory, was delivered this past Tuesday, and uh, he's up in Indianapolis. Our sixth child, uh, Gloria, delivered her third child, and that's our 10th grandbaby. And so we're excited, and we rejoice in God's provision. Both mom and baby are healthy, to God be the glory. This morning, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to probably the most I call it the greatest conversion of all, Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, I want to ask you to turn there, and I want to read for us by way of introduction, verses 1 to 6, and uh, I want to present for you the greatest conversion of all. Acts chapter 9, you follow along please as I read for us the first six verses found here in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to through six. The Bible says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest, and desired of him letters to Damascus. If he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Verse 4. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. The greatest conversion of all. Let's bow in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, as we open your word, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will illumine the truth of this passage to our heart and mind. I pray, God, that above all things, you would convict and convince us 
that no one is beyond the grace of God. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd fall fresh on me. I pray that by your mercy, I'd be a vessel fit for the master's use. But above all things, I pray the still small voice of the Holy Spirit would do a work in our lives today. Breathe fresh hope for those who feel hopeless. God, work in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to make this statement. When we read through verses 1 to 6, here we find in verses 5 and 6, two of the greatest questions for humanity to ponder. God, who are you? And secondly, God, what would you want me to do? Now between those two verses, five and six, there is a great mixing bowl containing the ingredients of conviction, conversion, repentance, faith, election, as well as salvation. Over the course of the last year, God began to work in my heart, driving me to particular portions of the book of Acts. Most recently, I revisited this tremendous chapter in Acts chapter 9 involving Saul on the uh, road to Damascus. But there are portions of this text that have really held my attention over a long period of time. And so I want to address that as best as I can in this message this morning. However, I want to begin by establishing the significance of this story here in Acts chapter 9 for you and I. And I want to do that by asking this question. How important is the conversion of the Saul of Tarsus to Christianity? How important is the conversion of the Saul of Tarsus to our faith. Believe it or not, this conversion story has always been considered one of the principal pieces of evidence for Christianity. A commentator by the name of A.T. Robertson stated this, and I quote A.T. Robertson, the opponents of Christianity have always perceived that the resurrection of Jesus and Saul's conversion were the two greatest pillars that had to be overthrown. One man who addressed the skeptic's challenge to Saul's conversion was Lord Littleton. In his observation on the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul, let me share this. In 1785, Lord Littleton wrote, one, either Paul was an imposter who said what he knew to be false with the intent to deceive, or two, he was a fanatic who by the force of an overheated imagination imposed on himself, or three, he was deceived by the fraud of others, or four, what he declared to have been the cause of his conversion really did happen, and therefore, the Christian religion 
is a divine revelation. So, that's one of the principal pieces of evidence of Christianity. But there's a second, and that's the preponderance of occurrence. The number of times we see the conversion of Saul to Paul recorded for us in the book of Acts. The salvation from Saul to Paul is recorded on three separate occasions. First, we find it here, Acts chapter 9, recorded by Luke in the third person. You'll notice verse 3, the Bible says there, he, Saul, journeyed. That's the third person, singular. The second occurrence takes place, uh, Acts chapter 22. Paul is speaking in the first person to his unbelieving Jewish brethren in defense of his ministry. And then you go to the third occurrence. That's Paul again speaking in the first person. He's sharing his testimony in front of King Agrippa, Festus, and Bernice. That's found in Acts chapter 26. Now through today's text, the reader is brought to a point of contemplation with this question. Can God transform the worst of sinners. Can God transform the worst of sinners? Have you ever thought that yourself? You know, I don't come from a Christian family, right? Born and raised, Clinton, Iowa. My father, an alcoholic, diabetic, died three days before turning 39 in a diabetic coma sitting at the kitchen table all alone. Two weeks before I was two years old. My mother didn't raise her four children. Her mother raised us, my grandma. But you know, after God changed my life, in that school year, 1980 to 81, I had a great burden for the salvation of my mother. I loved her, even though she didn't raise me. I remember vividly the day driving in her car. She's driving. I'm in the passenger front seat. And I began to share my faith, what God was doing in my life. I hoped to express the truth of the gospel there. She was a captive audience, and she said, Pat, stop. I'm too wicked of a sinner for God to save. As we all know, God certainly can. And history provides us with many wonderful examples of how God delivers people from their sin. We all may know cases where God has saved awful sinners. But you know, sometimes we begin to question, did that person really get saved? Can I share with you this caution? We must always remember to distinguish between the salvation of a soul, and the sanctification of a life. Alan Redpath once said this, and I quote Redpath, quote, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, and the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. Spiritual maturity is a lifelong process, amen. This morning as I examine this text, I want to do so looking at four areas. Number one, well, begin with looking at Saul's violent misbehavior. Saul's violent misbehavior. Then we'll consider Saul's vision of Messiah. And then thirdly, Saul's visitation by Messiah's servant. And then we'll look at 
the fact that God's will has purpose. But let me start with a reexamination of Saul's violent misbehavior. You know, Saul's role in persecuting Christianity was like the mind of a dictator. He did whatever it took to eliminate the opposition. For a reminder of that, turn back one chapter. Acts chapter 8, let me read verses 1 to 3 of Acts 8. Acts 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, that's Stephen's death. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, notice, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So Acts chapter 8 opens with a description of Saul's dastardly deeds. And you know, much of Saul's sin-filled past is disclosed with his very own mouth. Think of these passages of Scripture with me. I won't quote the entire passages, but I'll highlight portions of these passages. Acts chapter 22, verses 4 and 5. The Bible says, and I, Paul speaking, persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons. You come to the end of Acts 22.5, and it says, to bring them which were bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Acts chapter 26, notice verses 9 and 10. I read and highlight a portion for you. Acts 26, 9 and 10. In the middle of that, we read, And many of the saints did I, Paul, shut up in prison. At the end of verse 10, it says, And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. In the middle of that section, Galatians 1, 13 to 14, it says, Paul speaking again, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. You know, it was a church father by the name of Augustine who called the conversion of Saul the violent capture of a rebel will. The violent capture of a rebel will. How on earth does something so dramatic happen regarding the conversion? Well, according to Paul's simple explanation, here's how it happens. 1 Timothy 1.13. Speaking of himself, Paul said, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy. But I obtained mercy. That's the only reason you're saved this morning. You were a recipient of the infinite mercy of God. Amen. Saul's violent misbehavior. But notice, secondly, Saul's vision of Messiah. I want to focus on verse 3, Acts 9, verse 3. I'll read it again. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Let me give you the setting. It's Damascus. Now, I don't know how much you know about Damascus, but according to Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary, Damascus is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world 
and the capital of Syria. And in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 8, we read these words. From the head, for the head of Syria is Damascus. Now, it's time for a little Bible geography. Bear with me. Do you know it well? You can open up and track it in your Bible maps in the back of your Bible if you'd like to hold me to the fire. But here we go. Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Are you with me? Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Red Sea. Now, where's Damascus? Well, go back to the Sea of Galilee there up at the top. Right at the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, what do we find? Capernaum. Now, go north a little bit. What do we see? Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you'll just jog to the northeast, that'd be there, your direction to northeast, there's Damascus. So, yeah, Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, Caesarea Philippi, jog northeast, there's the city of Damascus. Now, three major caravan routes pass through Damascus. Therefore, it was an ideal location for trade. And its trade neighbors, well, they included Egypt, Arabia, Mesopotamia. Its major export, listen to this, the major export of Damascus, do you know what it was called? Damask. Damask. That's right. A patterned cloth named Damask. That's how it got its name. Now, where's Damascus in relationship to Jerusalem? Because remember, the text talks about Jerusalem and Damascus, right? Well, Jerusalem sits west of the northern tip of the Dead Sea. So remember, Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Now, the northern tip of the Dead Sea, there's Jerusalem. Now, why did Saul head from Jerusalem all the way up to Damascus? Well, he decided to take whatever steps were necessary to capture members of this group identified as the way, obviously Christians. So that journey, by the way, from Jerusalem over there, the northern tip of the Dead Sea, all the way up to Damascus, that's over 100 miles. Some say 130 miles. Saul knew that many Jewish converts had fled Jerusalem to seek refuge all the way up there in Damascus. And therefore, he decided he was going to go up there and round them up, drag them into court. And historically, Damascus has always been known for severe and storied confrontation. Josephus, the old Jewish historian, he recorded there was a time when 10,000 Jews were massacred in Damascus. Now we find another confrontation of another kind. So that's the setting. Let me give you the sighting. Now this sighting has five parts. Five parts to this sighting. You'll want to follow along. When we come to verse 3 of our text here in Acts 9, Damascus becomes a place of sobering confrontation between Saul and Almighty God. And this confrontation takes the form of sight as well as sound. All right? So part one of this sighting, a light from heaven. Notice in verse 3 again. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now, we would not do this text justice if we disregard the biblical significance of light. 
From two additional accounts, we're going to turn there and look, we learn that this occurrence of light took place at high noon. You say, Brother Pat, are you sure of that? Yep, let me show you. Acts chapter 22, verse 6. Acts 22, verse 6. Let's quickly turn there, if we can, and I'll read that for you. Acts 22 and verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. Now, let me take you to another text. Chapter 26, Acts 26, verse 13. Notice what it says, Acts 26, verse 13. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. So this light was bright enough to literally blind Saul of Tarsus. And bright light, by the way, has always been paralleled in Scripture with the glory of God. Think of these verses. Psalm 104, verse 2. The Bible says, Who coverest thyself with light, Jehovah, as with a garment. Isaiah 60, verse 1, the Bible says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. And then in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, 16, the Bible says, Who only, speaking of Jehovah, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, to whom be honor everlasting. Now, we know, right, Israel was set apart to be a light unto the Gentiles, but they failed in their mission, and Christ, Messiah Jesus, came as the light of the world. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you know the verses well. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Verses 7 to 9. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That relationship with John the Baptist and Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that believeth in me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. So you begin part one with this sighting, noticing the light from heaven. But part two, a convicting question. That's in verse four, a convicting question. And what is it? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Notice God's knowledge. Saul, Saul, think about it. The Lord knew his name. In fact, he knew Saul's every hideous thought. You and I must acknowledge our God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. Consequently, God never learns anything. Neither does anything ever surprise our God. Many years ago, I was struck by the fact that my God is never overwhelmed. Are you? In this case, Saul's name is repeated 
Saul, Saul. That's to give added anguish to the soul of Saul. Imagine if you were Saul and you heard out of the sky, Saul, Saul. Oh, no. He knows me. Today, dear friend, you need to recognize, you need to believe that God knows who you are. He knows where you are. He knows what you've done and are doing. God's knowledge. But think of God's judgment. Why persecutest thou me? Now the Spirit of God draws a connection that will eventually blow Saul's mind. For all Saul knew, he was simply persecuting some obscure Jewish guys, some nobodies. But now he was going to be forced to realize these nobodies, these obscure Jewish converts, they belong to God. And that's who he's been persecuting. That made Saul the enemy of God. And all of this provoked Saul to ask the speaker to identify himself. But before we go there, let's ponder this. We know according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus is our great and sympathetic high priest. And therefore, no act of persecution performed here on earth against a believer goes unnoticed or unfelt by our sympathetic heavenly high priest. Consequently, Saul needed to realize he was leveling direct blows upon the person of Jesus Christ every time he persecuted a believer. Now he's standing before the judge, face to face. Was this wretched sinner's life transformed? Absolutely, yes. He would later write this in 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, meaning cursed. Let me ask you. Does your life reveal that you love the Lord Jesus? Let's look at part three of this cited, a meek response. That's in verse five. Verse five, we see this question. Who art thou, Lord? Now, why didn't Saul fight back? This doesn't appear to be the response of a cruel dictator to me. In spite of the blindness and in spite of the confusion, Saul was being brought into a state of acceptance. You know Elizabeth Elliot? That name ring a bell? She's with the Lord now. Elizabeth Elliot, her husband Jim Elliot, martyred for his faith. Elizabeth Elliot used to say, quote, in acceptance comes peace. In acceptance cometh peace. Maybe you've been 
fighting God over something you don't understand. Maybe it's time that you accepted his ways. In acceptance cometh peace. That moment is quickly approaching in our text for Saul. You see, when Saul asked the speaker to identify himself, he used the Greek word kurios for Lord, meaning master. Today, you and I would probably use in our vernacular the word sir. Sir, sir, who are you? And in the next moment, the speaker identified himself as Jesus. And suddenly, in Saul's mind, Jesus Christ is no longer dead. He lives. He's in the world, and he's talking to me with his own voice. So in his lost estate, Saul thought Christ was dead. He died on Calvary, right? On the cross. Now he believes that Jesus is alive and in conversation with him. So his mind is obviously changed, and there's a word for that, brethren, and that word is repentance. Part four of this citing, there's an indictment of Saul's behavior, and it's found in verse five when he says, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That's the indictment. Those pricks, they're a form of goads. That's that long stick with a very sharp pointed end that farmers use out in the fields to prod their oxen. And every time that oxen would lift its hind quarters and kick back, He'd hit that goad and encounter even more pain. Well, in his sovereign plan, the Lord had been goading Saul for some time now. As he witnessed Stephen's martyrdom, there was neither recanting nor pleading for mercy on Stephen's part. Instead, what happened? Stephen saw the heavens open and prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners. Oh, I'm sure that must have tormented and confused the heart of Saul. Notice part five of this citing, the embrace of a new master. For that, we turn to verse six, and we see the words, Lord, what will thou have me to do? That second great question. You know, I try and pray this prayer every day I live. I don't think there can be a prayer that brings greater glory to God than to look into the face of my Savior and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Charles Ryrie wrote about this verse, and I like what Ryrie said. I quote him. Paul was one of those rare persons who settled the matter of life service at the same time, he settled the question of his salvation for his soul. When he asked, what wilt thou have me to do? He was offering the Lord all of his life for service without reservation. This question takes me back. It takes me back to my very early seminary days when God called me to preach out of 1 Samuel chapter 3. Three times in the night, you know the story, 1 Samuel 3. Samuel thought he heard Eli calling him. However, Eli told him, it's not me that's calling you. And when Eli suddenly realized it, 
was God working in the situation. He told Samuel. Now, next time, son, you hear that, you should say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. I can think of no better prayer, as I said, than to pray, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now, I want you to notice, thirdly, Saul's visitation by Messiah's servant. That's in verses 10 to 20, but I won't read the text. I'll highlight portions as I explain this to you. Saul's visitation by Messiah's servant. His name, by the way, is Ananias. Ananias. Look at verse 10. We'll read that. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. D. Edmund Hebert, Bible scholar, identified 11 different men in the Bible with the same name, Ananias. By the way, the name means the Lord is gracious. What else do we know about this guy, Ananias? Not much. (laughs) All the Bible tells us is that he was a disciple living in Damascus, there in verse 10. He had no profound reputation. Chuck Swindoll puts, puts it this way, and I like it, quote, Through a vision, God plucked this ordinary individual out of certain obscurity and into the immortal record of sacred scripture. He made this nobody a somebody. Do you know what that reminds me of? Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1.26, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. So, his name was Ananias, and notice in verse 11, he was given a command. Let's read verse 11. And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. So much like Saul, I find Ananias to be a very responsive servant. In verse 10, he said, Behold, I'm here, Lord. And when we come to the command in verse 11, it's familiar. In fact, you can trace 44 different verses in the Bible with a combination of the same words, arise and go. Very familiar command. Notice he was given an explanation. Although there was some reasonable reluctance on Ananias' part, and you can read about that reasonable reluctance in verses 13 and 14. I won't, but you can. God willingly explained his purpose. First of all, God made a choice. Let's notice verse 15. Verse 15. And the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he, that Saul, is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So notice in verse 15, which I just read, he is a what? Chosen vessel unto me. So Jesus chose Saul long before Saul ever chose Jesus. And that's the way it always is. Amen? Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 16? You have not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. So as God's messenger, Ananias needed to understand it was God who chose Saul to be his instrument. So God made a choice. But notice, 
God's choice involves suffering, and that's verse 16. Let's read that. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So God's choice led to a striking turn of events. The one who caused so much havoc, that being Saul, would now enter God's crucible of sovereignly ordained suffering. And you know all about that. And you know that suffering has been called God's schoolroom where Christians learn humility, compassion, character, patience, and grace. And it's in that famous passage of 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28, where Paul enumerates the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, the beatings, and far more. But why? Why must believers suffer? Well, Hebrews 12 gives us the answer. God deals with us as his children. And after suffering has run its course, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In other words, suffering changes you. It changes me. It's part of God's plan to prepare us for eternity and to be instruments of his grace while we yet tabernacle on this earth. I want to close with explaining God's will has purpose. Following the Lord often involves surprises. You know, whether it was a bright light that day shining out of the heavens for Saul, or that vision given to Ananias, they both came as a surprise. They were not expected events. It's no joke to say that our God is full of surprises. Imagine being Abraham, who in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, was to go out not knowing whither he went. You see, God won't fill in all the blanks when he calls us to go. And that's why it's called a faith venture, a spiritual journey. To this day, we're still walking by faith, not by sight. God's will has purpose. It includes surprises. And where there's no fear, there's no faith. Where there's no fear, there's no faith. You see, when I arrived in Singapore with my young bride and a, a baby just five months old by the name of Sarah, I was exhausted. We were exhausted from travel. And so our host took us to our place of lodging and said, now you've traveled a long distance. You go take a nap, get your rest. I'll pick you up later and we'll go out to eat. And so we lay down. And when I woke up from my nap and I looked over on the bed at my wife and that five-month-old baby, I promptly put my head in my hands and began to cry, saying, God, what have I done? What have I done? <sighs> this dude was scary. How was I going to start something from nothing? But allow me to add this. You know, when faith kicks in and commitment takes over, look out. It was a joy to finish that first four-year term in Singapore and 
look back and see a church had been started, was in the process of being registered with the Singapore government, well, God be the glory. Only God can do that. But where there's no fear, there's no faith. And thirdly, faith always involves an emptying before there'll ever be a filling. What do we call that process mentioned in the last half of verse 9? Let's go back to chapter 9, and let me read verse 9 for us. And he was three days without sight, and notice this phrase, and neither did eat nor drink. What do we call that? Fasting. Saul needed to learn the process of self-denial, and it's one of the key elements that Jesus laid out in the formula of making his own disciples in Matthew 16, 24. You know the verse. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know what Martin Luther referred to self-denial as self-hatred. And that Greek word for self-denial is aparneomai, and it speaks of removing from oneself or disowning oneself. And the bottom line is you refuse to associate any longer with the person you once were. In Saul's case, he would not stay empty. At the end of verse 17, Ananias promised Saul he would be filled with the Holy Ghost. And in verse 19, Saul was encouraged to go eat and be strengthened. So it doesn't last forever. Then finally, obedience brings blessing. If there's one principle from the scriptures I sought to drill into the lives of all eight of my kids from the time they were small to the time they're tall, it's obedience brings blessing. Faithfully following Christ allows for some pretty special perks along the journey. In the case of Ananias, he's the only one in scripture who witnessed the scales fall from the eyes of Saul. Let me remind you in closing who Ananias was. Commentators refer to Ananias as a quote-unquote layman. Now maybe you've come to Spring Meadow Baptist this morning thinking that God only uses pastors like Pastor Stephen Schwanke or, or missionary representatives from Baptist World Mission like Pat Delaney. Don't be confused. The fact that God would use someone who was not an apostle in the life of Saul of Tarsus should be a rebuke to those who think that God only works through the clergy. He doesn't. He's willing to use any willing, empty vessel. And on this fine day, if Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, you need to thank him for your conversion, amen? You need to glory in the fact that he has all sufficient grace for you. Furthermore, you need to make sure your hands are firmly fixed to the plow and you're not looking back over your shoulder because those people aren't fit for the kingdom of God. But what we have just seen and heard is the greatest conversion of all. Do you know someone? who you think is too wicked for God to save? Not so, my friend. There's a God in heaven who loves you with an everlasting
Heavenly Father, our hearts are burdened. They cry out for people we know a lot, we know a little, but we know eternity hangs in the balance for their soul. And I cry out, Lord, and pray that this message would be a source of hope and encouragement, that if we keep praying, that if we keep working, that if we keep trusting, there's no soul too wicked for you to save. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I realize you folks are preparing for revival. Could you imagine that week of revival coming next month, beginning on the 15th? You bringing a visitor you've been praying for, for to be saved, and before that week is out, they walk the aisle to trust Christ as their Savior. My friend, maybe it's a good thing this morning to repurpose in your heart and mind for God to give you that opportunity. Has God burdened your soul for that person? Are you thinking about that one soul? Maybe if so, this morning, would you just raise your hand that I might see it and remember to pray for you in your pursuit of the lost. Yes, I see your hand and yours and yours, many all around. Why don't we just covenant together for God to do what we cannot do? Loving Heavenly Father, even now, we look forward to a month from now when evangelist comes and proclaims your word and Lord, help us to commit to praying for those who are lost. Help us believe that God can do exceeding and abundantly above all we can ever ask or think. And, oh, God, because you are a God of infinite love, would you please arrest and draw these souls for whom you died to yourself. Use our prayers. Use our efforts. God, do a work. Thank you for everyone who's come today. I pray that they would commit themselves anew and afresh to be your witness. I pray you'd bring us back this evening again to gather around the beloved word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.